0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me Norman Swan.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor.
1: Today an Australian discovery which could be the basis for a COVID vaccine that's effective against future variants.
0: A group of people in whom the vaccine doesn't seem to work, why and what can we do about it?
1: And new findings which suggest that the majority of people with mental illness who enter early intervention mental health services do not have good outcomes two years later. It calls into question the way services such as Headspace are designed and their focus on brief interventions rather than longer term care from a team whose various expertise can be used to tailor care to the young person's individual needs. These are important matters since most adult mental health issues start in adolescence and young adulthood. Professor Ian Hickey of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney led the team which did the research. Welcome back to the Health Report. Thank you, Norman. So you followed nearly 7,000 young people for up to two years.
2: Yes, and this reports on 1,500 of those people where we had data points, at least three data points, over the two-year period to look in detail. Very important to say in terms of their age, their gender, their level of disability when they entered. They're comparable with most of the 100 Headspace centres across Australia. So they're very representative of the young people coming in through that Australian innovation, really, and I was originally a director of Headspace, and it is an innovation to provide access to care. The assumption being if you got access, you'd necessarily get better outcomes.
1: Well, and we'll come to that in a moment. And what you're, in a sense, preempting there is a discussion about, because... The, the the outcomes that you're going to talk about are actually imply criticism of Headspace in general and their retort is that this was not representative. But what you're saying is that it is representative of the sort of young people who come into Headspace.
2: That's right. So early intervention, courtesy of Pat McGorry, our Australian year in 2010, early intervention is a really important concept in mental health, just like other areas like cancer and heart disease and other important inflammatory conditions. So getting in early is important. And we in Australian mental health have put a tremendous amount of ac- ex- Uh, emphasis over the last two decades on access to care, just getting in, expanding the front door. And we did this for young people. That's why Headspace was set up. We have now over 100 of those centres in Australia. So that's really important to have an entry point, but it can't just be a waiting room. It just can't be get there and that will be enough.
1: So who are these people and what do they come in with?
2: So typically these are young people, average age of about 18. They come in with an admixture of anxiety, depression, sometimes other mood. Often they have a degree of drug and alcohol problems. About 30% actually have suicidal ideation, so they're quite unwell. And in terms of their level of function, about two-thirds of them actually are not fully participating in school or work or employment. So they've got mental health problems that are already having significant impact on their capacity to be productive in everyday life.
1: What care do they receive?
2: So most receive what headspace services and other early intervention services provide, which is access to brief psychological interventions. And most of the episodes of care are actually fairly brief. There are you know, somewhere between four and up to sometimes ten psychological sessions or a youth worker, some degree of assessment. Generally, fairly brief periods of intervention is the normal headspace model and most of the brief psychological therapies. There's an assumption that this is early that is largely psychological, and that most of these people are not on pathways to more severe problems. So, the cognitive behavioural therapy or
1: something like that.
2: Yes, mainly cognitive behavioural therapy. So, good, good therapies for short-term problems, for short-term psychological distress, with the assumption that, in fact, most, the majority, would not be progressing on to ongoing impairment or to more severe mood or psychotic disorders over time.
1: Which is not, which is not true, as, as you found.
2: So sadly, our work here, and this extends work done by Headspace itself, who previously published in 2015 outcomes on up to 90 days. But actually here, we're talking outcomes up to two years and a median of over 400 uh, 400 days in these particular people. We're actually looking at what happens over the longer term. So you've got this fairly brief intervention up the front, lots of people coming forward, but actually when you track what's happening, over two-thirds of those people are progressing to quite poor functional outcomes. So they're likely to be out of school, out of work, not doing what they really need to do. So one half of early intervention is connecting with people early, and Headspace does that very successfully. And I must say, in the short term, it relieves distress, and in work we've done ourselves, it reduces suicidal ideation. It starts the process really well and engages young people early. Does it reduce but, suicide? So it reduces suicide attempts. So deaths is harder to track, but certainly in the work we've been doing, once you come into care, suicide attempts go markedly down, not to, not to zero, So risk goes down, psychological distress goes down in the short term. But the really important issue here is what happens to a person's life longer term. And that's what this is really about. It's about reducing the degree of impairment associated with these early onset major mental health problems.
1: So what's not happening that should?
2: Clearly what is not happening is the level of care, multidisciplinary team-based care, more specialised services earlier on. So people are getting this brief primary care type model for more severe problems. So just like in the rest of medicine, just getting to the waiting room is not enough and just having brief interventions is often not enough. More complex diseases and many mental health problems are not brief. The assumption that when you come along when you're young that it's brief and will go away quickly is clearly not true. And this longer term data on functional impairment along with the other data that we've looked at in terms of symptomatology and course of illness, it's just not true. A lot of young people coming forward through these services have much longer term needs. So they need more sustained care over longer periods. We'd suggest for many of these people at least up to 12 months of multidisciplinary care, sophisticated it, it's clinical tr- psychology... Well, and I was going to say, it trips,
1: it trips off the tongue, multidisciplinary care. What does that actually mean?
2: Yeah, it means, it means medical personnel like GPs and psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, occupational therapists, working together with, and I must say importantly... Employment support workers, education support workers, so teams of people, mental health nurses as well, working together in teams. The sort of thing our Medicare system just does not support, and although Headspace was designed this way, it's not what it actually delivers on a daily basis.
1: So do these models exist?
2: They do exist, and they exist in clinical research trials, and they exist in a number of small specialist teams, but they're not fundamentally supported in Australia by our Medicare systems. And a lot of debate in the federal budget and elsewhere about establishing particular hubs like this on an ongoing basis. So an accompanying editorial in the Medical Journal of Australia, Professor Pat McGorry was arguing for exactly that. We needed, you know, something in the order of 50 such hubs, we would say, at least. You know, you've got to have teams of people working together, just like in cancer care, just like in diabetes and chronic care. Single practitioners just don't deliver.
1: So the model would be that Headspace is the entry point or something like Headspace is the entry point, but then they pass on the young people who need that care early, early on in the process in a seamless immediately,
2: way. Immediately. So in projects we call right care first time, if you've got more severe problems, what this really demonstrates is if you come in impaired, you're going to stay impaired over that course unless you receive much more intensive care for a longer period as it happens. Now, that's not a fault of the Headspace services itself. They just weren't designed that way and they've never been built. The original intention was that that was what would happen but they've remained at the light end. They've remained with essentially a brief intervention model. In fact, the 2015 National Mental Health Commission report that I was a co-writer of said, look, Headspace has got to go regional, it's got to work with state services, it's got to work with other private practice services, but those services have to provide multidisciplinary coordinated care. You have to track who's not getting better or who's getting worse and make sure they get more intensive care for a longer period.
1: Now, it's changed... It's not changed nationally, but it's changed... Regionally, hasn't it? New South Wales, Victoria have changed the model and Headspace?
2: Right. So, what is happening is the Commonwealth hasn't really responded, but the states are starting to. So, Dan Andrews has been the standout premier in this regard. And in Victoria, the specialist services run by Origin Youth Health, that Pat McGorry and colleagues is now taking over and running those particular centres to integrate the Headspace centres with their specialist youth services. Now, around the country, the rest of us don't have an Origin like, you know, uh, specific youth service, but New South Wales in recent times to the credit of the Berejiklian government and now really led by Bronnie Taylor, the minister and the new Perrottet government is investing in putting medical staff back into Headspace and in developing more specialised services. But Headspace has been going Norman since 2007. This is 2021. 14 years later, we're still trying to build beyond the waiting room to actually the range of services that young people require.
1: Let's hope it happens. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Professor Ian Hickey is at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. And you're at RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Well, the three COVID vaccines available in Australia at the moment are pretty amazing and go far beyond the low expectations at the start of the pandemic. Remember that? They were, we weren't even going to get one modestly effective vaccine, we thought then. But these vaccines that we have now still have vulnerabilities. Recent discoveries at the Garvin Institute in Sydney, however, may lead to better, more robust coronavirus vaccines. Professor Goodnow, Professor Chris Goodnow, I should say, is Executive Director of the Garvin, and I spoke to him earlier. Chris, thanks for coming on to The Health Report.
3: Thanks for having me, Norman.
1: So what's the problem you're trying to solve here?
3: The problem is that the vaccines, as you know, are doing a terrific job of keeping us out of hospital and slowing the spread, but variants are going to keep popping up. Delta's the latest one. We don't know exactly what's going to be next. Now, with the, particularly the mRNA vaccines, we can do a pretty good job globally of playing catch up with the virus by reformulating it to be ideal for the new variants But that is always reacting to the variants rather than closing off the gate to the variants, if you like. And so that's the problem that we set out to solve back. So, in other
1: words, Uh, get in first so that you've got a vaccine that is variant compatible. In other words, it's it's going to deal with almost whatever variant comes along.
3: Exactly. You know, the variants are coming. Let's get way ahead of it. Let's cut it off, pass. So, to do that, we had to identify parts of the spike protein on the virus that the virus really can't afford to change, that are so integral and immutable to the virus that even between this virus and the SARS virus of 2003, it really hasn't changed.
1: And you managed to do that?
3: We did. It was hard. What we learned was that the vast majority of antibodies that each of us makes, either after we're infected or protected, hit parts of the virus that the virus can readily change without any cost to the virus or very little cost.
1: So in a sense, what you're saying here is there's an inefficiency, that the vaccines produce a, a set of antibodies which don't necessarily neutralise the virus.
3: That's true as well. You know, probably 95% of the antibodies we make, we know, don't neutralise the virus. The 5% that do, and they're the ones that you know we're very happy about uh, with the vaccines, they mostly hit parts of the virus that are readily mutable, that the virus can change its spots without really harming the ability of the virus to replicate, but it shrugs off the antibodies to varying extents.
1: Rather than get to the technical side of what the names of these, you know, what the different molecular parts of the spike protein is, but if you found this, these immutable parts, how easy or difficult is it to produce a vaccine to them?
3: It is going to be harder. And one of the things that we learned was that actually immunising with the spike protein or the the critical bit of the spike protein, the receptor binding domain, from SARS, the virus that's more distantly related to any of the current variants of SARS-CoV-2, immunising with SARS actually elicited a a much higher proportion of the antibodies against this immutable site uh, uh, for neutralisation.
1: So you went back to an ancestral virus and found that if you... Who gets spike protein? You've got a better immune response.
3: That's right,
1: and likewise
3: for the. Yeah, it's a good question. It could be just a quirk of nature. We found a similar thing with the bat virus that's more closely related, but still relatively distant from SARS-CoV-2. It may well be that that's part of the trick that this covid 2 virus has learned is to uh, trick our immune system into making most of its antibodies against a part of the virus that it it can afford to swap
1: and change. So it's setting up um, a barrage of um, distracting fire in a sense.
3: Yeah, it's sort of a bait and switch game that the virus, uh, this virus seems to be playing particularly well with our immune system.
1: So coming back to designing a vaccine for it?
3: Yes. Now, I have to preface that so far the evidence that this works is in mice with a human antibody system so that's as close as we can get to testing it in humans but it isn't in humans it's still in the lab.
1: So you've got to go into other animal models and then humans. So the vaccine that you produce is an mRNA or is it a protein virus where you've actually taken these bits of the spike protein and you're injecting them directly into the body?
3: At the moment it's a protein which we're making in a lab and then sticking onto the surface of a of a very potent carrier that gets the immune system going. That's not the format that we'd take into the next phase of the work and MRNA would absolutely be the ideal way to do it.
1: Why do the inactivated viral vaccines just to explain, this is particularly the Chinese vaccines use the whole virus but the inactivate it so it's not infecting you. But they're they're not very effective compared to the vaccines we've got. Now, you'd think that they would be because they're going to contain this immutable part of the spike protein to which you want an antibody response.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, Norman. The short answer is medical science does not know the answer. What we do know is that these coronaviruses, not just COVID-2 or COVID-1, but the whole class of them, which have been around for millions of years in many different animals, they perfected a trick where they elicit antibodies against them, But within a year or so, the antibodies fade away. And that's true really for every coronavirus that we know in livestock, in humans, etc. Now, why that is, I don't know. I don't think anyone has a good answer. But presumably, when we use the whole viral particles, and possibly even the whole spike, we're still falling into that trap that the uh, coronavirus has learned millions of years ago.
1: So this vaccine presumably will be a third, assuming that your development strategy works, it'll actually be a third generation vaccine because the second generation vaccines, which are a bit better than the ones we've got now, are already on the runway.
3: That's right. The second generation ones are, for example, will have the Delta spike in the mRNA or a cocktail of a couple of different spikes. And that's going to be plan A. It's what we've done with influenza is, you know, for decades where we try and anticipate which are the new emergent variants and we tailor the vaccine for this season to it. This third generation really will, if it works as well in humans as it does in animals, will give us an option to get ahead of the variants altogether.
1: And given, as you say, it's likely to be an annual, we will need an annual booster, still going to be a market for it? That's right.
3: And, you know, one of the other things that we're doing in the lab is learning a bit from some of the vaccines, the great vaccines, which you get one shot and you're protected for life. The antibodies don't wane. The most famous one, of course, is the one that medical science used to eradicate smallpox from the globe. You know, that's a a single jab of an attenuated virus and you've still got antibodies 60 years later and you're still protected. We need to be able to tap into that kind of approach if we really want to think about eradicating COVID-2.
1: Chris, good luck with it. Thank you very much indeed.
3: Norman, it's a pleasure as always.
1: First Goodnow is Executive Director of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Sydney.
0: One problem these third-generation vaccines may not solve, though, is the challenge of achieving an effective immune response to COVID vaccination in immunocompromised people, like those with blood cancers such as lymphoma. In a moment, I'll talk to haematologist Professor Judith Trotman, who's been following people with lymphoma through the pandemic. Here, though, is one of Professor Trotman's patients, Andrew Warden, who lives in a tiny coastal village only accessible by boat. He spoke to Norman recently.
1: Thank you for sharing your story with us on The Health Report. Pleasure. How's COVID affected you? COVID has had a significant effect. The treatment that
4: I'm having is a particular treatment, which is an inhibitor. It's a Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which stops the cancers getting into my body. It's been very shattering to find out that, in fact, the good part of my treatment is, in fact, inhibiting the uh, vaccination working and I've, in fact, had two Pfizer uh, vaccinations and I'm participating in this COVAX lymphoma study. And uh, the extensive testing that's been done has revealed that I haven't responded satisfactorily. So uh, I've been told that I've got to uh, continue to act as if I'm unvaccinated. That's uh, not good news for me because it means that I'm not able to do what normal people are doing now that the rules are been relaxed and will continue to be relaxed. So uh, I can't enjoy life as I would like to with being a normal person. And what about the third
1: dose? Are you going to get a third dose?
4: I've had a third dose. I've also actually stopped my treatment a couple of weeks ago. This is my decision to stop it. The hypothesis that I share with uh some people is that if you stop the treatment, uh, the BTK inhibitor, it loses its effect after about four days. And uh, I'm able to uh, now give the vaccination a good chance. So I'm going to pause my treatment
1: for four weeks. Does that make you anxious about your cancer coming back?
4: The symptoms are starting to come back now. I'm getting uh, night sweats, I get bleeding noses and uh, my fatigue will probably increase. Having had four different treatments at each stage, you go through the uh, physical signs and uh, I've got to know my body pretty well over the years. So it doesn't really scare me. For me, it's a tremendous uh, opportunity. If I can get the vaccination to work, I'll be normal again. That's the benefit and and I think everyone understands how good that is. And how do you see the future for yourself? Oh, very good. I had my vaccination uh, Thursday week ago and I had a Moderna I'd, I'd previously had Pfizer. They're all very good. But the day after I had my vaccination, I was totally zonked. I have no memory of the day until about five o'clock and my wife hadn't been disturbing me. <laughs> she thought, he's sleeping. Uh, I think i would nearly departed. This this world. sort of no movement. We thought we'd better take it. my temperature and, uh, and struggled finding a thermometer and read 38.1. Anyway, I rang the hospital and uh, decided that it was just a bit too difficult because I would have had to get in a boat and then drive a two-hour drive to get to the hospital. So uh, I went for the Panadol solution, and uh, it was great. The next day, I was fine, normal temperature, and uh, life goes on. Doesn't seem to have dented
1: your optimism, Andrew.
4: Well, I've really enjoyed life, and uh, you strike a few bumps in the road, and you just keep on. Andrew, thank you very much for telling your
1: story on The Health Report. Thank Thank you very much for listening.
0: Lymphoma patient Andrew Warden. And people like Andrew with lymphoma find themselves in a tricky situation in this pandemic. They're at a very high risk of dying from a COVID infection, so they have a lot to gain by getting vaccinated. But, as we just heard, the very treatments they rely on to survive make them less likely to be able to mount an immune response to the vaccines. Haematologist Judith Trotman has been looking into this as the lead investigator in the COVID in lymphoma study being run by Concord Hospital with the Kirby Institute. Judith, welcome.
5: Thank you, Teagan.
0: So your study has been looking into how patients with lymphoma respond to COVID vaccination. Why do a study like this here in Australia?
5: Well, it was very important that we did this study in Sydney at the time when we had a clean COVID-naive patient population in whom we could do this rigorous prospective immune assessment. Because we conducted this study, we vaccinated patients with the Pfizer vaccine through May and June, when the COVID risk in Sydney was all very theoretical. But unfortunately, months later with Delta, it became real and we needed urgent ethics approval to give patients their individual results with the caveat that we really didn't have a a very clear guide of how the laboratory protection translates to real-life protection against COVID. But in patients like Andrew and patients who had had um, antibody and chemotherapy or even patients who had been diagnosed with lymphoma but hadn't yet been treated, We wanted to do this comprehensive analysis with the Kirby Institute and know if they mount a B cell driven antibody response, but also how did their T cells, the other complementary arm of their immune system, respond? And also importantly, how capable were their immune systems at neutralising this new Delta variant of covid
0: What did you find?
5: Well, it was a mixed bag of results, Tegan, a bit of the sort of good, bad and ugly with a silver (laughs) lining at the end. Firstly, the good. We could reassure the patients who hadn't yet received any treatment for their lymphoma that they ended up with as strong a response as our healthy control. Now, for the patients who had been treated with antibody and chemotherapy, it was a bit mixed because just over half of those with follicular lymphoma and 70% of the patients with Waldenstrom mounted an antibody, a B-cell driven antibody response. And most of them, about 80%, were able to neutralize Delta in the laboratory. And what was reassuring for the follicular lymphoma patients was that the further away they were from having had their antibody therapy, the better was their immune response. But what was really worrying was for the patients like Andrew, who were on these tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And they had a small antibody response, a very muted antibody response, but not one of them was able to neutralise Delta. And Tegum, when I rang these patients, it was a bit like breaking bad news over telehealth mm. because it was distressing for them to know this at the peak of the Sydney pandemic. There was a silver lining because these patients were also able to mount an increased number of killer T cells, which are immune cells that can directly kill viruses. So we heard Andrew just say
0: that he was going to stop his treatment to get his third dose. I'm guessing this is a "don't try this at home, kids" kind of situation. That was exactly
5: yes, Tegan, I really do. <laughs> I urge patients on BTK inhibitors not to try this at home alone. Um, although I, I do recognise that a number of uh, of my patients who were on the study were very keen to get their, you know, their third mRNA vaccine and to stop their BTK inhibitor for a few days beforehand. But what we are doing, you know, under review by our Concord Ethics Committee, is in the context of very careful monitoring... Stopping these enzyme inhibitors for a few days before their third dose, and then monitoring them weekly for up to a few weeks after the third dose, and encouraging them to go back on their enzyme inhibitors because these enzyme inhibitors t- are effectively a, a switch, a temporary switch that turn off the activity of the Waldenström's. So I'd like to reassure you that I'm very confident that Andrew will uh, hopefully he's back on his enzyme inhibitor now. And- and uh, is getting good control of all those symptoms, which sounded very alarming to me. So
0: Delta hasn't gone away. Australia's reopening to overseas arrivals. We're opening our internal borders. How do, How do we best protect lymphoma patients as we reopen?
5: Well, firstly, they have to get fully vaccinated with all three doses because even a small so B or T cell, absolutely, even a small result is better than none. And we are seeing that they're mounting a good T cell response to the vaccine. So that is very reassuring to these lymphoma patients. And they need to talk with their haematologist about the optimal timing of vaccination around their treatment. Secondly, I feel that they really need to create a ring of steel around themselves of fully vaccinated people. I tell my lymphoma patients, don't mix with the unvaccinated because prevention is always better than cure. What and about treatments? thirdly, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, treatments, um, monoclonal antibodies.
5: Yeah, well, that, that is important um, because it's, it is fair to... You know, acknowledge that there is a you know perhaps a little bit of stigma around uh, getting COVID, and so it's important that lymphoma patients and indeed all immune-compromised patients, if they get COVID, they let their specialist know ASAP in the hope that they can get access to these monoclonal antibodies, these engineered antibodies which block the COVID infection and reduce the severity of the infection. So we're increasingly confident that patients will get access uh, to this COVID anti-spike antibody infusion to treat them if they did get COVID.
0: Briefly though, can these uh, infusions be used as a prevention, not just as a treatment?
5: We are hearing more and more about one company's uh, long-acting antibody that uh, remains in the patient's uh, system for for months that we could potentially use to prevent COVID in our study patients. So we're quite keen on on negotiating access to that, not just for our study patients, but potentially for immune-compromised patients in general. Judith, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Tegan.
0: Professor Judith Trotman
5: is a haematologist
0: at Concord Hospital and the University of Sydney.
1: Yeah, Judith does great work. She's also got, by the way, a tri- uh, an app called ClinTrial Refer where you can find out what trials are on and uh, particularly in your city where you might actually not, allows your clinician to refer you to another clinical trial, particularly with cancer. Because it's very important that you go on a clinical trial if you've got cancer. You do better even if you're not on the new drug um, because you get the best possible care as the comparator. Anyway, Judith does some great work there.
0: Right, so even if you're the placebo, you're still getting.
1: Well, in cancer, there's no placebo. You're, it's always against the best possible treatment previously. So, the, and they the lavish you with love and attention on a trial. So you get good. You, you do better no matter which arm you're on because that's of so fascinating. The, the increased care. So, and that drug yeah. she was talking about is actually AstraZeneca's drug, uh, which is a double antibody, which we've talked about on Coronacast a bit, and uh, is undergoing regulatory approval at the moment.
0: Yes, of course, if you have uh, an interest in coronavirus, you can listen to Coronacast, which is that other podcast that Norman and I do. But right now we're on the Health Report. And if you have questions for us, you can email us healthreport at abc.net.au. And Catherine has done just that, Norman. We were speaking last week, I think it was about osteoporosis and osteopenia. So basically bone loss and and bone disease. Catherine's been recently diagnosed with osteopenia and is curious about the options available to her because her mum had osteoporosis and she could see how hard it was. And she just wants to know basically whether osteopenia is a marker on an inevitable road to osteoporosis or if there's stuff she can be doing now to protect herself.
1: You and know, I must really do a program on this perhaps next, early next year because we had, we had a lot of response to our discussion about um, osteoporosis and osteopenia. So mm-hmm. osteopenia and osteoporosis are part of a continuum as measured by the DEXA scan and the bone, your bone density. And there's a, an arbi- a relatively arbitrary point at which you're defined as having osteoporosis. So you move along this continuum from osteopenia to osteoporosis, which is obviously Catherine's worry. And there are things which speed that up. And one of them is a family history. So if you've got a family history of somebody with osteoporosis, then that does increase your risk of moving towards that. Another sign is a trivial fracture. So you fall over and do something. It's not been a big fall, but you end up with a fractured bone. That's a sign that you're heading towards osteoporosis. And there are risk scores that doctors can do which... Work out what your fracture risk and so on. One of the complications here is the are the prescribing rules that the Commonwealth imposes on doctors in terms of when you can get prescribed certain drugs, which stop the The process of bone, you think your bone is a static organ. It's not a static organ. Your body is constantly putting in calcium and taking out calcium. In fact, your bones are a resource. They're a source of calcium for the rest of your body. You need calcium in your bloodstream to control, for example, your heartbeat, how nerves operate. So calcium is really important in your body. And one of the ways your body controls the calcium level is by taking it out of your bones when it needs calcium and putting it back in we absorb calcium from the diet pretty inefficiently so the bones become this it's a very active organ now when you've got osteopenia and osteoporosis the balance of that calcium metabolism is if you like a leak of calcium from the bones into the the blood the the resorption of calcium is greater than the laying down of calcium now there are drugs which stop or slow down that resorption. They have their own problems, but they do that and and slow down the process towards osteoporosis. And it's a delicate decision on the part of your endocrinologist about what point on that process that you, you start getting treatment. Now, there are Interventions that can help, such as improving your diet, making sure you've got lots of calcium. Calcium in whole food is probably more effective than calcium supplements. Although people have tried calcium and vitamin D, it's controversial as to whether that works. Probably doesn't, but that's something for your endocrinologist to recommend to you. What does work uh, in terms of helping your bones stay strong and as strong as they are is high-impact exercise. Now, you've got to be really careful about that and take advice, and probably your GP working with an exercise physiologist are best to advise you on that. But if you've got a history of osteoporosis in your family and you haven't yet got osteopenia, then walking, jogging, dancing, those sorts of things where you're actually landing on the ground with a degree of impact are very good for strengthening your bones and encouraging the body to lay calcium down in your bones rather than absorb it out. So there there are lifestyle measures and you've certainly got to stop smoking. That is really not good for, for your bones if you do smoke. But nobody who listens to the Health Report podcast smokes.
0: (laughs) Well, like you say, Norman, there actually, there was more than one question about osteoporosis and bone health. So I think we're going to have to come back to that next year, as you say. And then just a piece of feedback from Cheryl. So you had the interview last week with the clinical study into whether laser therapy works on rejuvenating vaginal tissue for postmenopausal women. and Cheryl's a fifty seven year old woman. she's been suffering symptoms for a few years now, she also has um, thrush commonly, and she's saying given that the outcome of the trial that we spoke about last week saw no change, she's struggling to see the reason that this surgery is being offered. Can we give some insight?
1: Um well, it's really an insight into the behaviour of professionals. It's not by the way, I'm not defending doctors or gynecological surgeons here. But a lot of professional groups cling to what they believe works. So, for example, you still get, this is one of my hobby horses, despite 30 randomised trials which show how you teach children to read and write using phonics, you still have student teachers being taught alternative ways to teach kids to read and write, which don't work. And so professional groups cling to stuff that doesn't work. And um, and doctors are no different from that. It happens in all professional groups, and so sometimes the way you pay people can make a difference. But even when you when you compare salaried professionals to people who are paid piecework, who are going to make more money because they do something, the behaviour is actually quite similar. It's more it's more of, it's a lot of it's about professional groups and what you believe actually works and wanting to help the patient. So. You will have gynecologists who think this is marvellous, they get improvements, but they don't realise that the improvements are no better than placebo. And sometimes what's got to happen is that the people who fund medical care have got to stop funding things that don't work. It's called low value care. And it's something that we will return to in the health report in 2022 now that we're getting over COVID a little bit. It's been a favourite theme of the health report over the years, but it's called low value care, where we waste money on stuff that doesn't work and we should be spending money on on what does work.
0: So for Cheryl, who's obviously listening with interest because this is something that's affecting her what does work?
1: Well, I would refer, to Cheryl, back to last week's program. I've listened to the podcast, but there's, there are various treatments. There's, uh, in, there's uh, estrogen and estrogen cream and various other things that our expert talked about uh, there. And, um, and essentially getting referred to a menopausal clinic, and many GPs are, are expert in treating menopause anyway. Sometimes short courses of hormone replacement therapy can work Um, but you've got to be careful with that over the long term. Um, But those are things that you need to discuss with either with your GP and, if necessary, with a gynaecologist who specialises in menopause and is not addicted to laser therapy.
0: Well, that's it for this week's Health Report. Of course, if you've got questions, please send them to healthreport at abc.net.au.
1: We'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to
2: an ABC podcast.